This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Exelon, a Fortune 100 energy company and the nation's largest clean power producer, and Pepco, an Exelon company providing safe, reliable, affordable energy in Washington, D.C. and Maryland. On Wednesday, November 28th, Environmental Protection Agency Acting Administrator Andrew Wheeler sat down for a live one-on-one interview with Washington Post's senior national affairs correspondent Juliet Alprin to talk about his first five months at the helm of the EPA and what's next for the agency. Other speakers, including California Attorney General Javier Becerra, as well as leading industry experts, provided insight into America's energy needs and talked about how to balance economic imperatives and environmental protection. In this segment, representatives from the solar, nuclear, and fossil fuels sectors will evaluate the trade-offs between economic opportunity and environmental protection. They will outline their plans to safeguard the environment while producing a sustainable amount of energy for all Americans. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Libby Casey, the politics and accountability anchor here at The Washington Post. And it's my pleasure to introduce our next panel, Abigail Ross Hopper, president and CEO of the Solar Energy Industries Association. Welcome. Good morning. Hal Quinn, president and CEO of the National Mining Association. And Maria Korsnick, president and CEO of the Nuclear Energy Institute. Welcome to each of you. Thank you so much for being here. And I'd like to remind our audience here in the room, as well as watching online, that you can send questions to us. I'll get them if you use the hashtag on Twitter, post live. So let me start just by asking each of you, how, how much of a threat do you see climate change uh, is right now, both to society as well as progress, and, and how can your industry be part of the solution? Abigail? Well, I, I, it seems odd that we would even have to question whether climate change is happening. Clearly it is, and clearly there, it, there's an urgency about it. I think that's what sort of has galvanized folks most recently with these recent reports. There is an urgency and a call to action you know, I have the pleasure of representing the solar industry, and we are a cost-effective, equitable, the panel before talked about equitable uh, solution to provide carbon-free electricity. And so I think any, any uh, answer and any solution to climate change that can happen right now has to include renewable energy and certainly solar energy. Hal? Yeah, I think, you know, this, this situation presents a, a real a challenge and an opportunity uh, across all sectors of, of not only energy industry, but the... Uh, uh, our economy as a whole. So in, in terms of uh, electricity, I think all sectors uh, can continue to step up. First would be using uh, what they use more efficiently. In, in the coal sector, we have technologies that we can um, put out today that will decrease emissions by 21%, and then with more advanced technologies on the horizon, reduce emissions 30 to 35%, just in terms of uh, combustion. And then as we test uh, carbon capture, which I think is uh, uh, really going to have to be part of the technology transformation uh, across many sectors for fossil fuels, but also for industry. Because when you look at the numbers, you know, fuel substitution doesn't get everybody where they need to be, according to the, the reports we see. Maria. I just don't think we can get to a climate solution without nuclear power. Um, if you look at the recent reports, whether it's the IGCC report, Nature Conservancy recently came out with a report. The last panel talked about a Google paper that was recently released. 
uh, Union of Concerned Scientists released a report earlier uh, this month, and all of it says we absolutely need nuclear power as part of the solution. Not only is it uh, no release of carbon, but it's no release of, uh, of other air pollutant emissions. So nuclear is a wonderful 724, they're around the clock, uh, carbon-free power source. I want to hear your perspective on what's holding your industry back. Like, what can government do? Let's start there, um, whether it's in R&D or whether it's in subsidies or leveling the playing field. Uh, we'll just go down the row and talk about where government, federal government's role is. Sure. No, that's a great question. We are in Washington. Um, federal government can really help uh, sort of across the board uh, for, for solar energy. So on the R&D, we, our government has historically invested in R&D and new technologies, and not just the technology, but how do all the technologies work together, right? How does the grid operate? And so there's a real opportunity there. Regulatory certainty, right? <laughs> Providing a, a clear policy framework that doesn't change every couple of months or every couple of years is important. Um, a rational trade policy is an important part of uh, what would be really helpful to our industry. We've been particularly targeted with tariffs uh, and reliable tax policy. And so, you know, we, it is important, I think, to have a level playing field to right, keep the government out of, out of the markets in that way and let, and let uh, different technologies compete. Um, but there's, there's certainty uh, is incredibly valuable. How? Well, I, I think the R&D part is very important uh, in terms of uh, looking at what are the uh, technologies that we need to have. I mean, there are technologies that are being uh, demonstrated at ben, sca uh, uh, ben Scale, but we really need to scale them commercially, so it takes some time, you need some patience. I think, I think renewables, particularly solar, is an is a interesting model. Uh, you know, the, the, the cost uh, uh, decrease, you know, that was all driven by a lot of R&D, uh, a lot of learning uh, by doing, so you get a conversion factor that's been a tremendous uh, in, increase in terms of converting uh, sunlight in, into power, and that's that's what we're talking about here for a lot of these other technologies. Is like getting more power for the fuel you use. So uh, we can talk. You know, so there's also going to need for some type of um, uh, uh, offtake agreements and and or production credits and things like that, which we saw in the renewable model. I mean, we look at you know people a lot of talk on coal and talk about fossil fuels. They look at China. China's China's two thirds of their Coal fleet is advanced, is super ultra supercritical coal, advanced coal. So they're really replacing their existing infrastructure with higher efficiency. And at least in our segment, I think for fossil fuel, that's the first step for coal. I think for gas as well, I think you're going to see gas combined cycles coming online that are 10% more efficient than uh, the last edition. So those are all steps forward. Yeah, I think innovation in nuclear is a, a wonderful area right now. Our national labs have been very um, engaged in the, the government encouraging. There's private sector investment, but adding to that private sector investment, uh, real government investment in, in R&D. Um, you think of nuclear today, you think of large nuclear plants, and the nuclear of tomorrow is smaller in small modular reactors, um, and even smaller than small micro reactors. And I think it's really gonna change the face um, of nuclear and uh, the partnership that nuclear can have with renewables. And uh, it's really something to look forward to, and it's not that far away. You know, it's in the next, you know, five to seven years, I think we're gonna see some real transformative uh, designs that are able to, uh, to come out. The government can help in encouraging that innovation and also in uh, paving the way through regulation and reducing some of the regulation. And the Trump administration has called for 
regulatory certainty, but Abby, you pointed out that that's not been the case for the renewable sector. Um, what would regulatory certainty look like for you? And, and I'd like to hear from the rest of you of what, what specifically you want to see. Is this, is this part of a long-term national energy bill and that legislation getting passed in this, uh, in this divided uh, Congress in Washington would be very difficult. So what can the Trump administration do? Well, I think the Trump administration do, do a couple of things. Um, so you talked about transformation of the energy sector. I think one of the one of the things we haven't talked about is storage and the role that storage has to work with any of our fuel sources to to help um, modulate the grid. And so investing in the R and D part of storage and having tax policy uh, investment tax credit for storage um, is one really clear thing that that. Congress can do. Um, the Trump administration can continue to invest in these technologies, but it can also um, let the markets work, right? Let, let the technologies compete. So uh, uh, we are obviously not in favor of, of some of the, the proposals that have come out uh, to, to provide subsidies to existing generators. So we've, we've pushed back hard on that. Um, so that's one thing they can do is stay out of that area. Uh, and I do, th I, trade policy is really important, I'm sure, to all of our industries. So having a a uh, trade policy that incents U.S. business and U.S. investment uh, would be an important thing that they could do. I want to get back to trade in a moment, but but let's talk about um, what the Trump administration has tried to do for nuclear, for coal industry in particular. Um, we saw FERC shoot down um, some of the Trump administration's uh, agenda. Um, what do you see the role of FERC right now, especially as we just saw the Trump administration's latest nominee clear the Senate Energy Committee this past week? Well, it's, a, it's an important one, and I think uh, notwithstanding the fact that FERC rejected the earlier uh, uh, proposal uh, forwarded by Secretary Perry, uh, at least one thing they identified is there is a real problem here. There's an issue here. The, the markets, that are, the so-called competitive markets, are not competitive. Uh, they are being uh, distorted by out-of-market payments. And uh, so when the rules of the game were created, I don't think, you know, you didn't see that much pressure from these out-of-markets payments, policies, uh, state policies. So now I think FERC has to focus on how do you accommodate what the states want, but at the same time not uh, distort uh, the marketplace. Because, you know, uh, frankly, baseload power, whether it's nuclear or coal and some gas, is really struggling uh, to recover their, their marginal costs when they're dealing with, um, uh, they're dealing with uh, uh, other resources that are coming in, both the capacity markets and the uh, energy markets. Uh, with uh, support, uh, outside support from uh, state or in some cases federal sources. Maria, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I think the Trump administration has done an excellent job starting a conversation um, around resiliency, around fuel security. Um, and so uh, even though, as you said, you know, FERC shot down that, that early proposal, I, I think the fact that that conversation has been started and it has now led to more dialogue and discussion uh, within FERC, I mean, fundamentally, we do need uh, market changes uh, to be fair and to credit uh, some of the attributes um, that, quite frankly, nuclear is bringing to the, to the marketplace. And um, right now, the actions in the states for us, you've seen success in New York and Illinois and New Jersey and Connecticut. Uh, where the states do care about this emission-free generation, and they value it, and they want to keep it. So we're either going to end up with a patchwork quilt of solutions that are driven by all the different state um, requirements, you know, but a, a more elegant solution would be um, a national one. And we'll definitely hit on states. Um, concerns that you have about Bernie McNamee and his advancement potentially to the FERC committee, um, 
does that potentially change the, the, the outlook of FERC and the perspective on, of FERC when it's weighing proposals such as the Trump administration's earlier one? Yeah, I mean, I, I would echo Maria's um, uh, welcoming of, of a conversation about resiliency and reliability. I think that's important, and I certainly would echo your, your um, desire to have all the energy attributes valued and credited and, mm -hmm. and monetized. Um, that, that is a conversation that I think I can speak for all renewables on that one that we're, that we're happy to have. And so when I look, sort of regardless of what, which nominee it is, what I look to FERC is for an independent body, right? One that is not politicized, one that is not sort of beholden to any specific agenda, but really has the, the underpinnings of reliability, resiliency, and a, a cost-effective wholesale market at heart. Um, so let's talk about trade and, and, and you know, trade policy, trade wars, and, and what they are meaning for each of your industries. Um, how, how let's start with you. What are some of the goals you'd like to see in terms of trade and abilities to get product to market? Well, we, we, we like the idea if, 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 the, uh, if the end game is let's, let's get down to uh, minimal or no tariffs. We like that idea. Uh, I think what's, uh, there are some concerns we do have with the uh, uh, U.S.-Mexico-Canadian agreement in terms of uh, investor uh, uh, protections uh, that are not quite there that used to be in those agreements. And uh, that, that's, I think, a, a problem and hopefully not a precedent for future uh, agreements going forward. Uh, you know, the, the issue with China is, is serious and driven by a lot of very legitimate concerns. We do have concerns about where this ends, with particularly more, less for the coal side, more for our metals and uh, minerals uh, producers here in the United States, because it's uh, just like coal, it's a, it's, a, it's a global market, but it's very much affected on the commodity price side, and, and we, have, uh, we have materials going for processing in other, other countries, and including China. So there's, there's a lot of opportunity for retaliation there. How involved do you feel like your uh, interests are being represented. How are you able to come to the table? And who well, we, we've to? we've had we've had uh, discussions with the, with the trade representatives' office and with the White House. They understand our points. Uh, you know, I, I I just would say personally, when I look at what's going on, it's it's sort of a page out of the playbook we saw back in the Reagan administration. Back then, it was Japan that was really the target. Now it's China. So whether it ends up with a a favorable solution for the United States at the end of the day, we'll have to see. But uh, this is not what, what the tools they're playing with are, are not unknown and it's not unprecedented. Maria. Yeah, China is an important market for the nuclear industry as well. Whereas we're not building as much new nuclear here in the United States, China is building a lot of new nuclear. Um, and so that is an important market for us. But we also uh, respect what the Trump administration is doing in terms of the challenges that China uh, poses for us. So we're working uh, closely with them to figure out uh, what work can continue um, and, and what work can't. Abigail. Um, so hopefully no one is as deeply steeped in the solar tariffs as I had to be for the last year and a half, but um, there was a, a, for us it has not just been a China issue, but a, a worldwide uh, a tariffs on any panels and modules coming in from anywhere in the world. Um, and the challenge we have, is, it's not with the intent, right, the, to, to foster and grow a domestic manufacturing. Um, no, one, no one would argue with that, but the, the tool being used to try to incent that is not working. So we have tariffs on our products 
that, uh, that are basically just added cost to consumers, and it's not having the desired effect. So projects are being canceled, investment isn't happening, and there's not uh, sufficient domestic manufacturing existing or being created um, to solve that. And so that, that's our real challenge is that kind of the, the means are not justifying the ends by any, by any means. How are you finding um, avenues for dialogue and conversation to make sure that the administration and that the incoming Congress sees your perspective on this? You know, one of the most amazing things about solar that people don't know, there's over 250,000 Americans who are working in solar. Uh, we did a hunt, we visited a hunt, the top 100 solar districts, almost half Democratic, half Republican. So this is an issue that really, you know, governors, members of Congress, uh, senators care deeply about because their jobs in their district. And that, so to answer your question, that's the avenue, right? If you are uh, putting, un, you know, taxes basically, increased costs on our product, jobs are gonna be lost in your district. And that certainly gets the attention. And, and I think uh, there's an openness to having dialogue uh, because we are such an economic force. And what are you seeing at the statewide level in terms of uh, um, in investment, um, um, looking for the role of renewables, seeing how renewables can be port part of the portfolio in a place like, obviously, California? Yeah. Um, to talk to us about some developments in the statewide sure. level. Sure. Well, I mean, just a couple weeks ago, right, with the, all the governors um, that were elected, not all the governors, but th with the governors that were elected across the country, there were, I think, seven that ran on clean energy platforms. And so it's a really ripe opportunity for states to act. I would, I would echo, there's so much action happening on energy policy at the state level. Mm -hmm. um, consumers want it, customers want it, businesses want it. Uh, and so governors and legislatures at the state level are mandating clean, you know, renewable portfolio standards, clean energy standards. Um, and I think that will just continue to grow, and not just in places like California and Massachusetts, but places like Illinois and Michigan and Minnesota uh, and Nevada. So it's, it's a, it, is a, um, it is brought both from consumer demand and from the lowering prices. Mm. Maria, you mentioned a couple of states that are on your radar um, that you see as taking an initiative and, and um, both being welcoming to nuclear um, as well as perhaps incentivizing it or you know, allowing for the clean energy portfolio that you're interested in to come in. So tell us more about what's happening at the statewide level. Yeah, so um, New York uh, passed a, a zero emission credit. Uh, Illinois, likewise, had a, had a program similar to that. Connecticut uh, was a little bit different. They just had a, a clean um, uh, energy market, if you will, that nuclear was able to, uh, to bid into. Uh, New Jersey recently um, also uh, passed a, a zero emission um, uh, program. And so, again, at the state level, there's a lot of interest. We would be very interested in changing the conversation from renewable portfolio standards to clean energy standards. Like, don't pick a technology, pick the outcome. The outcome is clean energy. So what is it that we can do to get to clean energy um, and, uh, and sort of, you know, go in that, in that direction? And some of these states are, in fact, embracing that. As she mentioned, there was a lot of uh, different action at in a variety of states. As we look forward, um, we see Pennsylvania and Ohio near term on the radar screen uh, in 2019 for conversations there about uh, some of their nuclear power. But um, it really does, it comes 
down to um, when you close nuclear plants, uh, emissions increase. Uh, that's been proven time and time again. And the states care about that, and the states care about jobs. And uh, nuclear offers a lot of jobs in these states, and it's thousands of jobs um, and the tax base. And when they have a, a whole picture, they really uh, appreciate and value uh, the generation that they have and they want to keep it. Talk to us about the, the question of NIMBY, not in my backyard, and, and concerns that residents may have about having nuclear power in their backyard, especially after Fukushima. Yeah, I'll tell you, we get the most support for our nuclear plants by people that live right next to the nuclear plants because they're very familiar with them. They appreciate it. They know people that work there. They appreciate the safety standards, um, et cetera. I, I've been in the nuclear power industry for over 30 years. Um, I've operated a plant. Um, I've run a plant. I've been a chief nuclear officer in charge of five reactors at three sites. Uh, I'm just uh, I'm fully invested from the inside, if you will, seeing how these plants operate, how they're run. The United United States brought commercial nuclear power to the world, and the United States operates clearly the best in the world. Uh, we have excellent standards, and you can see in the last 15 years, we've operated our plants at a greater than 90% capacity factor. Uh, you don't get that way from being lucky. You get that way from being really, really good, and, and we're great at it. What concerns do you have um, about not seeing the level of federal investment or statewide investment in making sure that um, everything from facilities are maintained and kept up in a way that doesn't just take um, private dollars, but also takes government spending. Um, and also that the R&D is there to keep advancing and developing the technology to continue to work on safety, to continue to work on, uh, on advancements. Well, in terms of the reactors that we have right now, that doesn't require any kind of government investment. Those are invested in by, um, by the companies that own them. Um, I, I ran a plant that actually went into commission in 1969. Uh, it's a plant in upstate New York. And um, you know, if you were to tour that plant today, I would tell you, you know, it's like a teenager in terms of uh, how well that it, it comes across. Those plants have been maintained. We've replaced uh, pieces and parts uh, throughout the, the time, and you'd never guess that when you toured that plant that had been in operation since 1969, uh, they're incredibly well maintained. Um, in terms of the government involvement and investment, there's new technology. Uh, America has wonderful um, ideas, and we put those ideas to work, and I think we have some of the, the, the most interesting, innovative ideas that are happening here in our national labs and some of the private companies, but is a lot of risk to bring those to market. And so what we really need is the government to be able to invest Best, sort of build that first model, build that first of a kind uh, so that everybody can understand it, understand how it works, um, and then let the commercial process uh, take on from there. Uh, that's an example, a small modular reactor that's uh, looking to build um, at uh, Idaho National Labs as an example so that you then have uh, people that can have an example and they can see one. All right, how statewide level, uh, where do you see development and advancement. I think a lot of Americans perceive the coal industry as something that the Trump administration is trying to save and assist. Um, when we see reports out of places like West Virginia, a lot of times it's about saving jobs and, and, and saving an industry. Well, you know, we're, we're pleased with what the administration has been doing at looking back at some of the, what we'd consider regulatory excess of the past administration, particularly on coal and, and on its markets. I mean, when we saw the tail off uh, in production and demand, it, it largely coincides with a series of regulations on the last administration that started kicking in 2011, 13, then 15, and uh, we lost uh, 50,000 or, or more uh, um, 
megawatts of, of coal capacity. So uh, we're looking back at some of those policies and saying, did they, go, did they overreach? Not to totally dismiss them or repeal all of them, but, but look and reshape them is important to us to, to bring some stability. I think it's important to our customers who are looking at what do they need to invest in in terms of to keep those power plants uh, running and running uh, more efficiently and cleaner. I think the new ACE rule, which is, is, has that in mind, which is let's look plant by plant and get the improvements out of uh, performance. And then what are some regulatory impediments uh, to, uh, to uh, the owners investing more in those plants, uh, such as the new source review, which is uh, a lot of uh, power plants, both gas and coal, have stumbled over the years. And it's, it's, actually, um, it's actually stifled investment. Uh, at the uh, some of the issues on the markets that we talked about before, uh, you know, with nuclear facing, you know, th their answer has been the zero energy, uh, zero emissions credit, which is really built in to, you know, bring them from, you know, cash flow negative to zero or more. You know, it's it's really kind of a modeled off a of re renewable energy credit. So if we're going to talk about um, state initiatives, about let's value the attributes. Let's look at some of the attributes. Fossil brings in terms of uh, its base load capacity, its resiliency, its reliability, as we saw in 14, 2014. I mean, uh, at least in the East, 52% of the incremental power that was needed came from coal. Uh, two years, three years before that, during the vortex, it was closer to 90%. So, you know, those are things that we got to look at. Um, you know, taking off the optionality when we look at solutions for whether it's climate or environment, taking out the energy optionality we have with a balanced portfolio is, is very, it has to be thought through very carefully because you know, the, the diversity of the portfolio with nuclear and coal as main base load, gas, renewables uh, there as well, it's, it's estimated to save our consumers $114 billion a year. Even as you talk about regulations though, there's also just market competitiveness and the, and the cheap right. price of gas uh, influencing uh, how, uh, how consumers are gonna get their energy. Uh, absolutely, uh, part, of the, part of the story though is with some of these regulations that went on coal, that required heavy capital investment, so that required uh, owners to make decisions to retrofit or close. In many cases, they were closed. Certainly, natural gas, the, the differential in natural gas to coal uh, uh, price differential is, is probably been cut in half, which makes a difference. But uh, what happens with some of these regulations is your power plants, when you re-equip re them, they are less efficient, so you have less net power to sell. So that hurts you in the marketplace as well. And then you're, then you're competing with some of the out-of-market uh, uh, payments to other sources. We're about out of time, but I want you to, each of us, uh, t to leave us with um, one thing you'd really like to see from this new Congress and this White House working together on that would help your industry. Abigail? I would say um, an easy thing that this new Congress could do is pass an investment tax credit for storage. I think that would, that would help transform our energy market. Um, and I think more broadly, sort of a, a holistic conversation about the, the energy source and the energy system of the future. We heard in the last panel about the electrification of our vehicles uh, and sort of what kind of infrastructure is needed for where we're headed. And rather than a 50, 50 state patchwork approach, it would be, I, I, would, I would love to see a national energy policy. How? Well, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, we're gonna keep our uh, expectations low for the next Congress, mm -hmm. and then hopefully we'll be uh, pleasantly surprised. So if we, we have some action. Uh, I think it would be on the tax side. We'd look to uh, can we can we get some tax credits for the investments being made uh, for that reimburse for the operating and uh, maintenance costs of some of these plants for these retrofits we've had made under the regulations. And many of them, even EPA admit, admitted when they proposed them, weren't necessarily.
due to public health threats. They just threw them in uh, for the ride, and that costs us a lot of money. It costs the utilities a lot of money. Um, so something something along the, those lines. I think if they, we this uh, the conversation Maria was talking about, I think started at FERC, but I think it needs a wider uh, uh, a wider audience, and Congress might be part of it, which is over the over the, the grid, its, its status in terms of resilience, reliability, the value of diversity, both in terms of those attributes, but also in terms of volatility and, and, and the cost overall. Maria? Yeah, I think recognizing the attributes that the different generation sources bring through a clean energy policy. All right. Thank you so much to all of you. And I want to thank our audience for being here today, also our audience online. Um, I, I want to remind you that if you'd like to watch clips from this morning's discussion, you can go on to our website, WashingtonPostLive.com, also learn about upcoming programs. Um, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.